Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. May the love and the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be upon you. We welcome those who are joining us now as we continue in worship. You know, I said to Connie, my wife, a little while back, I said, you know, Sean is going to be away on the 23rd. Uh, He's going to be attending his son Jackson's high school graduation. And I am going to fill in for him that morning. And Connie, who's always the encourager, said, well, that sounds great. (laughs) I said, yes, and we've decided to continue with the current series that we're in, Cruciform, Living the Cross-Shaped Life. And we've decided to continue our work, our way through 1 Corinthians, and I'm just going to lend another voice to that ongoing conversation. And she said, oh, that sounds wonderful. She said, so what's up next? What's the next topic? And I said, judgment. (laughs) Cruciform judgment. There was stone cold silence in that room. (laughs) She continued to look at me and she had the smile on her face that didn't waver and she blinked her eyes at me a few times and then she said, well, That sounds just positively awful. (laughs) And she's got a point, right? I mean, just the word, the word itself, judgment. It feels heavy and harsh and ominous. It feels dangerous and condemning. It feels so final. I do think that through time that we've hijacked the word judgment a bit, especially this idea of the judgment of God. God's judgment, and we've draped it with doom and gloom so that just the thought of it evokes a sense of menace and foreboding. It feels like a final showdown, a final culminating one-time event that will determine our eternal disposition. And we often use the word as a threat, don't we? So, of course, it becomes weighted and heavy. We say, God will judge you. God will be your judge. One day you will stand before God, and fair enough. But this very binary, this all-or-nothing way of thinking about the judgment of God might be a little lacking. This very binary, this all-or-nothing way of thinking about the judgment of God can also cause in us some quite unfortunate behavior. I mean, we want to pass the test, right? We want to be declared as righteous and deserving. Of course we do. Me too. Me too. Of course we do. But if we're not careful, we can be 
sucked into an unwinnable game. In our humanness, we tend to wrestle control. We all like to be in control. We try to take control of the outcome. We work on our image, on appearing righteous or appearing more righteous than everyone else. We compete. We chase this way of thinking or that way. We adhere to this thing and then to that. We climb. We seek to prove. We paint a picture for the world to see. And we compare. Somehow we gauge the degree of our own righteousness by looking at the righteousness or the lack thereof in someone else. We hide things, too. Sometimes we just plain hide because we're afraid that we don't measure up. We disparage others and other ways of thinking because we are so bent in all likelihood on elevating ourselves. And along the way, along that path, It's not righteousness that has grown and developed in us, but something else, something more like self-righteousness. And it's not good, and it's not healthy. It's also not new. In fact, the kind of thing that I'm describing is the very kind of thing that was going on in Corinth when Paul writes his letter. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, and we'll read beginning with the first verse. Paul writes, So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Well, that sounds a little bit awful. But it's also the word of God. For the people of God, it's reliable and it can be trusted. Let's pray together. Our Father God, This day, our prayer is that you continue to be in our midst. That, Father, you reveal to us that thing or those things that need to be revealed. That, Father, in us you bring into the light the thing or those things that need to have light shone upon them. Father, show us the way to peace this morning. Show us your grace. I offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So this morning, I'm going to suggest that we consider expanding or perhaps broadening a little our understanding of the judgment of God, of God's judgment. There are four ideas uh, for this morning. First of all, I'm going to propose that God's judgment is better thought of as an ongoing, shaping, transforming enterprise rather than just a single soul culminating climax to the end of our earthly lives. And I'm also going to suggest that God's ongoing judgment is something that we should seek. It's something to be sought and embraced rather than feared or dreaded. And we're going to admit that to subject ourselves to God's ongoing judgment requires vulnerability. And there may be some pain involved, but there is no shame. It may be painful, but there is no shame. And finally, I'm going to suggest that what we find on the other side of judgment is more beautiful, more beautiful than anything that we've allowed ourselves to imagine. But again, let's start with the word judgment. So it is sometimes, and quite responsibly, I believe, translated differently in different translations of the Bible. I've seen it translated as evaluated. I've seen it translated as examined. Now, words like evaluated and examined feel a little different than the word judged, don't they? It feels a little less rigid. It frees us a little bit. Now, the translations that I most often use, and the ones I trust most, quite frankly, translate the word judge and judgment. So I am going to stick with that, but, but I like this introducing this idea of, of, a, of a different word, of being examined or being evaluated, because I think it helps us nuance the word a little bit, and it's a bit more productive for us as we consider this idea of the judgment of God, especially if we're trying to broaden our thinking uh, just a little bit. But what if we entertain the idea that God's judgment, God's evaluation or examination of us is an ongoing enterprise, an ongoing perpetual enterprise rather than only a single culminating encounter. In Philippians, the second chapter, Paul encourages his readers, you may remember, to continue to work out their salvation says, continue to work out your salvation. And around here, we often use language like that. We say, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. I have been redeemed, I am being redeemed, I will be redeemed. I have been reconciled, I am being reconciled, I will be reconciled. What if we spoke about judgment, God's judgment in that way? I have been judged. I am being judged. I will be judged. I have been evaluated. I am being evaluated. I will be evaluated or examined. I believe that that might be an altogether better way to think about it, to think about the judgment of God. And I think that it's 
quite by design. I don't think that that should be new to us or a surprise to us. So, you know, we tend to only speak very generally about the Trinity. Now, we may speak words. We may use words like three in one and one in three. But we tend to think practically in terms of separate entities. We focus most of our attention, quite appropriately, on Jesus, on the life of Jesus, on Jesus' teaching. It's a very, uh, very kind of Western pragmatism to our expression of faith, and of course we do, and that's perfectly good and perfectly fine. We tend to think about God as something else, related as something else, and we tend to think about the Holy Spirit as something else yet again. But let's just hold up for a minute. Let's allow ourselves to think in terms of this divine interplay. Let's bring them all back together and consider them together for just this morning, a perpetual dynamic energy between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in us and around us and through us and in and around and through all of creation all of the time. Let's focus for a minute on the Holy Spirit as an integral part of this divine concert, this divine trinity. In John 14, the 26th verse, we find the words, Jesus is speaking, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Jesus is speaking, God is sending, and the advocate, the Holy Spirit, is being sent to dwell in you for a very specific purpose, a divine purpose. The purpose uh, is is an advocate to help us and to guide us and to correct us. Now, I've seen this word advocate or paraclete uh, translated in different ways also. I've seen it as convictor, as comforter, as helper, as intercessor, um, uh, as guide, all of these types of things. But think about it just for a minute. We don't need an advocate or we don't need a convictor. We have no need for a comforter or a helper or an intercessor unless something is amiss, unless something has gone awry unless something has gotten off course, unless something has gone wrong, then we need an intercessor. Then we need a helper. Then we need our advocate. Now, of course, the only way to know or to feel or to have a sense that something has gone off course is for there to have been an assessment an evaluation, a judgment, a judgment that that takes place in our inner places, in our souls, every minute of every day. You have experienced this. You've heard that still, small voice inside, or sometimes it's that loud one that says, hang on, let's, let's get this right. You've experienced that. You've heard it. I propose that judgment in this sense is not a threat, it's a promise, and that it's a gift. It is the gift 
of the Holy Spirit. Judgment is not an event that we stand outside of, that we are the object of, but rather a way of being that we are invited into as an active participant. We are invited to be an active part of the divine interplay. Another way to think about it is that we are invited to be an active participant in our ongoing transformation from the inside out all the time. I love this painting by the Russian painter Andrea Rublev. It's from the 15th century. It's called The Trinity. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're seated around uh, a table, and there's lots to be said about the colors that have been chosen, and there's lots to be said about the position of the hands. And there seems to be an empty space there at this table. Of particular interest to me is this little nondescript rectangle that we find right on the front of the table. It's believed that at one time there was a mirror there, so that anyone who gazed upon this picture would understand that the empty place at the table was reserved for the observer, reserved for you. The ongoing judgment of God, the interplay with the Trinity, is not a threat. It's an invitation. It's not just one day, as in one day in the future. It's right now. And it's always. Well, if that's true, then God's judgment in this sense is something to be sought and something to be embraced rather than something to be feared or dreaded. That's not new either. That shouldn't be a surprise to us either. Voices throughout the ages have cried out to be examined. We find in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We read it again, another voice in the 51st Psalm, verses 7 and 10. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Help me, Lord. Help me. Show me where I've gotten off track. The Apostle Paul also continues along this way and encourages us in uh, his letter to the church at Rome in the 12th chapter. We read, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He goes on in his, uh, his letter to the church at Philippi in the first chapter. We read, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you, who began a good work among you, as if to suggest that work is continuing and is continuing right now, 
who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. So let this be our cry as well. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Renew me, Lord. Show me where I'm off track, Lord. Transform me, Lord. Judge me today. Now, I would be disingenuous if I didn't point out that accepting the invitation to ongoing examination and judgment is, well, I mean, it's hard. It just is. It requires vulnerability. That's a word that we hear a lot, and it's a word that a lot of people throw around. We hear the word a lot, but this, is, this requires vulnerability. It requires an admission that we need help, and we, we don't like to do that. It's not our nature to admit that we need help, that we can't do it on our own, that we're off track and we cannot right the ship. Help me, Lord. It's tough for us to do, especially tough for us to do every day when we're so bent on being in control and having it all put together. It was not the nature of the people of Corinth either. Paul is writing into that very same type of idea, that very same type of attitude. So it requires vulnerability, and quite honestly, the thing I'm describing can be painful. And that sounds just awful, doesn't it? It can be painful. In the text we read, Paul uses the imagery of being brought into the light. Being brought into the light, that's terrifying, isn't it? At a light being shown on our innermost darkness. That doesn't sound like something we should welcome and seek and embrace at all. Quick to say that the darkness hates the light. This idea of a light being shown on our innermost darkness as Paul describes, is terrifying to us. It, it doesn't sound pleasant at all. And of course, it can be blinding at first. It can be blinding at first. Just, just think of when you're lying in bed and somebody decides it's time for you to get up and they flip on the light in order to wake you up. It's blinding for a second. It's disorienting. Or we kind of have to catch ourselves as we come out of a dark movie theater and into the lobby or out of a, an, an unlit building into the bright day of sun. It's blinding at first. It's a bit disorienting, but we quickly adjust. So the light can be a little bit uncomfortable, but we also know that the light is absolutely necessary for life. It's an absolutely necessary component for life. A plant, for example, can't grow and develop without light. It's a necessary component for photosynthesis. A plant can't grow and develop without light, and neither can we. Neither can you. Neither can I. But here's the promise. On the other side of judgment is something so beautiful, and the word I chose is promise. This is a promise. This is a promise from God, and this is a promise from me. 
On the other side of judgment is something so beautiful, so perfect. On the other side of judgment is not bondage, but rather freedom. Not shame, but rather hope. Not guilt, but rather peace, even joy. What we find on the other side of judgment, on the other side of the judgment of God is grace. The perfect, immeasurable, life-giving, soul-lifting grace of the living God. We've been singing about it all morning. Did you hear yourself? Do you believe it? Every time we encounter the Christ, every time we encounter the triune God, every time what we are going to find is not shame and not guilt, but grace. I fully intended this morning at this point in the sermon to tell you a story. To tell you a story of Eustace, to remind you of it, the dragon boy that C.S. Lewis wrote about in his Chronicles. You know, he found himself turned into a dragon. He was covered with dragon skin and dragon scales, and it was heavy. And Eustace was unable to shed his dragon skin on his own, even though he very much wanted to, and he tried and he tried and he tried, but he could not rid himself of this heavy, scaly dragon skin. It was Aslan, or God, with his sharp claws, that was able to do so. Eustace says something like that first swipe, that first swipe of the claw that dug into my skin hurt. Eustace goes on to say something like, but the pain of having that dragon skin peeled off of me was soon replaced with the joy of losing all that heavy, scaly weight. And then by plunging into a cool, healing pool. Eustace couldn't shed the dragon skin on his own. Only Aslan could do that. I can't shed my scaly dragon skin on my own. Only God can do that. And that first swipe, well, it might hurt. I was going to tell you that story in much greater detail. But I decided to be a little more personal. A little more personal than is my custom. And clearly a little more personal that I'm comfortable with. In October of last year, on October the 11th, in fact, as this church gathered for the first time in a while for in-person worship, I was not here. I was in the hospital across the street. And as some of you likely gathered in this room to worship, I was laying in an operating room. 
about to undergo an emergency surgery, and there was another one scheduled for the next day. I had gotten to the hospital. Things had gone south for, oh, a couple of weeks. We were trying to get ahead of it and couldn't. I ended up at the hospital, and, and very soon... Um, the language that was used when talking to me and talking to Connie and describing things and creating expectations. The, the words were absolute shock that I had actually made it to the hospital, that I had been able to survive and to get to the hospital. And my life expectancy after I got there was being talked about in terms of minutes and hours and nothing more. There was a lot on the line. Now, I want to be quick to say that was then and this is now. I am well. I am fine. I've been given a clean bill of health and I am in, I'm doing very, very well. That was then, this is now. And all of that is not the point of the story. This is. On that Saturday night, when everything had calmed down, I had been admitted to the hospital, and there I was. And there I was, alone with my thoughts. I was not alone, but I was alone with my thoughts. And I just felt like knowing <laughs> that I might not make it, through the night, that I might not make it through the next day. I just felt like it was time for a bit of a reckoning, for a bit of a reckoning with God. And I had to muster up the courage to do it. I was very, very tentative. I didn't want to enter that space. I didn't want to have this conversation with God. But I did. I mustered it up and I said, Lord, Take me to where you want me to go. Now, let me also be quick to point out that I also prayed, Lord, I don't mean by that, take me home. <laughs> I'm not ready for a home going. I want to stay here with Connie. But in this conversation, God, take me where you want me to go. And I expected that my thoughts would gravitate I just expected that my thoughts would gravitate toward what might come next, toward what I might encounter if I didn't make it through the night. I just felt like that's where my mind was going to go, that I was going to go toward heaven and I was going to go toward eternity and I was, you know, want to go toward hearing, uh, well done-ish, my good and faithful servant, and come on in. I just kind of thought that's where my mind would go and that that's where I would find my peace, but that's not where the Lord take me took me. The Lord did not take me forward. The Lord took me back. Not forward, but backward. Oh man, to be sure. Whew, I thought of things gone wrong. I thought of those things that were being brought into the light. Decisions that I wish I had made or wish I hadn't made. Choices that I wish I made or hadn't made. 
All the times I had been less than I knew I should be, times of neglect and omission, times of selfishness, things about which and times during which I was just flat wrong. The times that I'd done harm to others. And some of the times I meant to. That was being drug into the light. And it was blinding at first. It was a little painful to begin with. But very quickly, I, I began to adjust and I began to realize that even in the midst of, of, of all of that, all of this reckoning, one thing that was strangely missing was regret. I didn't, I didn't feel any regret, as flawed and imperfect as I know myself to be and as you know me to be. I felt no shame. I felt no guilt. This was not so much like a confession like I thought it was going to be. It was more like an understanding between God and me, between the Trinity and me. What I felt was compassion. What I felt was assurance. What I felt was freedom. What I felt was peace. Not euphoria. but a deep, abiding peace. What I found there on the other side of judgment, what I found there on the other side of judgment was grace. The central character in this divine interplay that, that occurs to me is not me, and it wasn't my sin, it wasn't even the verdict, but rather the perfect, immeasurable life-giving, soul-lifting grace of the living God. Judgment. Judgment leads to grace. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Maybe today, maybe today you would like to experience something like that, not something like ending up in the hospital, 
and on an operating table, but something like this freedom and this peace that I've been describing, something that's on the other side of this judgment of God. It's not menacing and foreboding. It's correcting and compassion-filled and grace-filled. Maybe today you would like to experience that or something like it. I want you to know that that's possible. In fact, I want you to know that it's certain that wherever you may be today, whether you're on this campus or you're online, wherever you may be today, it's there for the taking. Maybe you don't know how to start, and that's okay because, if truth be told, none of us really know. We all just do the best we can. But maybe you can start today by borrowing my words, and maybe those words are these. God, I'm tired. God, I'm tired. I know I can make a wreck of things. And I know I have. And I know I likely will again. And God, sometimes it's hard for me to really believe that you can love somebody like me. That that what I read is true. That you love me and there's a place at your table for me. But Lord, I want to be free. I hope it's true. I want to be free. I want to feel hope. I want peace. Lord, bring me into the light. Here I am, Lord. Take me where you want me to go. Look, if you prayed that prayer or or something like it, I I want you to know that that prayer is real and I want you to know that God heard you. And I want you to know that that which I've been describing that that has been sent to dwell inside of us, to help us, to be our advocate, to be our intercessor, that's already in you. And it's there to be loosed and it's there to be freed. If you prayed a prayer like that, We want you to tell somebody about it. Let's continue that discussion and that conversation. If you're online, you can email us. Email us at connect at jcbc.org. If you're here on campus, then at the end of the service, just after our sending out, I'll be standing here and I'll be happy to to talk it over with you. I'll be happy to pray with you. I'll be here in the sanctuary. There will be pastors to the left of the stage in the Family Life Center If you prayed that prayer or you just want to talk, you just want to pray, then there's a pastor there to help you. But for now, if you're able, it's time for the church to scatter and let's stand together. May Christ go before you to prepare your way. May Christ go to your right, to your left, abiding closer than even a sister or a brother. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. May Christ go above you to remind you on the days when dark clouds roll in that there's one above the clouds. There's one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word. Christ go behind you, encouraging you forward one step at a time, but mostly may Christ go in you. 
transforming you, judging you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm with his. Go in peace. <laughs>